equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to 1 of 200 The Independent Politics and Media Podcast It is a sunny Saturday morning in Auckland and we've got people from across the country here today. Uh, we've got Mark down in Christchurch. Kia ora koutou. Uh, we've got Paul also in Auckland, I think. Hello, folks. Yes, in Auckland. It's very sunny. <laughs> and we're also joined uh, for the first time on the podcast by Stephanie Rogers. Welcome. Kia ora. Uh, and yeah, I guess first time here, um, give us your, your little intro. Where, where do you come from? Um, how should people know you? Uh, kia ora everyone, uh, Ko Stephanie Rogers Tokoingoa. I am so many things. Um, comms nerd, <laughs> Green Party candidate for Oharu, unionist, feminist, and as now everyone on Twitter knows as of this week, a poll dancer, um, which is definitely the most important thing to know about me. Um, yeah, coming to you live from Tawa in Wellington, where it seems sunny, but it's bitingly cold. Um, and yeah, I've just got the partner and baby to go out for a nice walk so i'm not interrupted by the wi-fi suddenly disconnecting uh, while i'm on the call fantastic thank you for joining us um we have uh, only, only a couple of things uh, we really want to focus on this week despite the absolute chaos uh, that has infiltrated our politics since the beginning of the week the big thing that has just been dominating the media uh, has been the Auckland airport shares debacle um, that has just managed to touch every single part of the discourse uh, in ways that no one expected. And yeah, culminated on Friday with some votes on that budget. And we want to move that into a a broader conversation about uh, political reporting, media media bylines, uh, and some of the seemingly uh quick shifts over the last two or three weeks as we move into the campaign proper um it's been frustrating to watch but let's kick off with the budget stuff uh paul you had max harris on a, a week and a half back to to go over auckland, a bit of budget for auckland's uh proposals they've really been doing almost all of the work I think only they and Bernard Hickey have really done any deep dives on this. And then other people have kind of been jumping in um, to, to add also, some commentary. Yeah, there's, there's been a, there's been a few um, other groups as well, which I think have supported uh, that kind of general sentiment against, um, uh, you know, budget cuts, against asset sales uh, and, and so on. Communities communities Against Cuts was, a, was another group um, that was doing a lot of work. Um, but yeah, I guess a lot of that kind of alternative budget proposal uh, work came from a better budget for Auckland. And and yeah, I would definitely recommend um, any of our listeners who haven't uh, checked out the interview that I did with Max. Um, I thought Max was really great and really covered off a lot of the detail around the um, the latest budget decision. So I would definitely recommend you have a listen to that uh, if you're interested. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I revised... Um... Kind of what, what what has been called a compromise uh, budget uh, was passed yesterday afternoon by Auckland Council. Mm-hmm. So really 
the thing that's typified this this entire um, conversation has been the inability it feels like for a, a serious discussion around the realities of the economics here with information coming out essentially straight from Wayne Brown's office that it has been a misrepresentation at best of, of the situation um, and been allowed to completely frame the discourse up uh, as as being about debt and paying that down. Um, that's, yeah, that's definitely um, had an influence, I reckon. Uh, and, and there's actually so many um, broader like threads here around you know political strategy um electoralism and campaigning and and you know political communications and media which i think is um the key point you're making there Carl. i wonder if it's useful for just kind of there's been so much that's happened over the last couple of <laughs> yeah, days yeah give us a summary yeah I'll, um let's just rewind a little bit um i guess just for our listeners to give some context to the that kind of the conversation that, that we can have so basically um as, as you said Carl, wayne brown months and months ago now put an initial budget proposal um to the council um this was like a, a very heavily austere budget so deep uh public service cuts um the private full privatization of the remaining uh auckland airport shareholding which um of the council which is uh, 18 percent um in order to like you say pay down a large chunk of the debt um, which there has been a lot of kind of fear-mongering around in terms of the council's debt position and and also i think uh wayne brown's primary motivation uh, along with many of the other right-wing councillors is to keep uh rate rises as low as possible uh, so initially uh wayne brown's rate rises were below cpi inflation i think an average of something like 4.9 percent um along those lines so that was the initial proposal now the decision on uh that began on thursday was after wayne brown had after negotiation with other uh councillors had sort of paired back some of his initial proposals. So he he reduced the amount of cuts, uh, which was initially uh, 125 million down to 74 million, increased rates slightly to 6.7%, uh, and also put a um, partial sale of the Auckland Airport to to the council. So so uh, he asserted that he compromised on all of these different different levers, right? And then that was the decision that was made to council. Now I think we can get into the broader political strategy. Um, of Wayne Brown's actions um, and you know I'm, I'm sure we will <clears throat> but anyway that was the decision to council on Thursday and then then there was further debate and discussion amongst the council uh, including some alternate proposals that were put forward uh, which some of our listeners may have heard of um, through through the media reporting on this um, so Lotto Foley and Angela Dalton two of the councillors put forward alternate budgets and basically those were for to increase uh, debt and all rates slightly or a combination of both in order to save the um the sale of the Auckland airport basically uh, and reduce some of the spending cuts uh, so those two proposals were voted down by 14 to 8 um, and so the same councillors voted uh, in favor and and against those amendments uh, both of those amendments in the same way and, and I think we should come back in our discussion to like the political you know um another interesting thread of this actually is the the kind of political coalitions um because it's not a straight left right uh split on on council there's there's right wingers that voted for those um alternate budgets and there are left wingers that voted against them or nominal left wingers and nominal right wingers i think it's important to say 
so anyway, the final budget then, after after those amendments got voted down, uh, Wayne Brown did some more tweaking to his budget, I think, to reduce the airport uh, sale from something like 8% of the of the shareholding to 7%, right? So so that what that um, ended up doing is leaving Auckland Council holding uh, 10% of the overall um, airport shares and some further tweaking. And then he put that back to the council and that, that was the final um, decision that got made and that, and that was made, um, I think it was, let me get the exact numbers here. I think it might've been 12 or, 12 or 13 votes in favor uh, and seven or eight against something like that. Six and, then, and one abstention, I think. Yeah, and then there was one abstention. So um, I'll have to get those those exact numbers. And so Wayne Brown's budget passed in the end, right? And and he called that a win uh, for himself. And there's been some reporting around it, around his compromises and so on. But I think that ties in with the political strategy conversation around like what what he thought would be the final position. Right? He he said, and other count other right wing councillors and his supporters like Deputy Mayor Desley Simpson and others were happy with that result, right? And the left wingers that ended up voting for it said that they weren't particularly happy for it, but voted for it anyway for a range of reasons. So I think I think that tells us who the winner um, overall here is, right? And that's Mayor Brown and um, and his allies and those who are seeking to, you know, sell down public assets to cut spending because uh, there are still there was still seventy or no, I think actually in the end eighty three million dollars I should say of cuts um, to council expenditure. Um, so you know not. Not a mile away from the 125 million, you know, significant reduction in that, but still uh, two thirds of that. So uh, that's that's still significant. And rate rises only uh, to 7.7% um, on average for the average rate pair in the end. So not not a huge increase there. And I think that kept to more or less around CPI. Um. So anyway, that's the that's the kind of lay of the land and the decisions that have been made. But there's there's a lot of interesting political kind of maneuvering that went on in there, and I think we can definitely get on to some of that. Uh, but keen for your thoughts on all of all of the matters that unfolded and, and what your thoughts on it were. I think that's a really key point you made at the end there. Um, the the right wing, the clear right wing of the council certainly didn't look like they'd made a compromise, right? As much as they were um, championing the idea of, of uh, working together um, to to find a, a middle point, uh, they were pretty self-congratulatory. They, they were pretty happy with where this ended up. And this is something that we were raising very early on. It, a lot of the rhetoric coming out of uh, Wayne Brown's office um, and out of some of the more ostensibly right-wing councillors was very clear Overton window shifting. It was, the, the intent was not to get those things, uh, was not to get the hardest cuts and the highest uh, sale of shares. It was to set an outer limit to take to the negotiating table. Um, they yeah, always expected to be pulled in on that. Totally, I, I agree on that. Um, there's there's one thing though that I think you know, I don't think it's it all comes down to political strategy and machinations at that level. Um, I do think like I was a little bit surprised that uh, the full sale of the airport didn't actually go ahead. Um, I I thought that it would. Um, so and and I think basically the reason why it didn't is essentially down to the campaigning work um, and the public uh, reaction towards that proposal. Um, and so I think that, you know, like we we're talking about before those campaigning groups that did a lot of work on that and, and also the councillors um, and others that pushed against that uh, throughout negotiations deserve a lot of credit um, for, you know, pulling that back and also pulling back a lot of the cuts as well to uh, public services 
you know that yeah it's i think it's partly uh wayne brown's negotiating strategy of like you say kyle putting the initial extreme proposal and not really expecting to get that but that's his starting point you know which he can then um you know will then get sort of chipped away at un- until he can build a majority on a council which and there wasn't a clear majority actually that's that's another thing that we should emphasize is that this pr- proposal that a final proposal that was passed could have been defeated um is is my view uh if there was more coalition building amongst uh, left-wing councillors to actually oppose asset sales and to oppose you know the, the severe cuts that have been put forward you know and and there's there's a lot of I think there was a there was a split on council on the on the left in council and there was there was more that could have been done to build those coalitions I guess is my main point. What's it been like watching this from down in Wellington, Stephanie? Uh, because you've had conversations around asset sales and particularly the airport previously. We've seen a couple of uh, local representatives weigh in um, on social media about this. What's been the sense from uh, down near Parliament? Oh, that's a tricky one. I mean, I'm an ex-Aucklander myself, so I'm I'm a little allergic to actually following Auckland local politics these days. Um, mainly, I, I take my steer from uh, my good Green Party comrade, uh, Ephesa Collins, who is just retweeting you all the time, Kyle. So, you know, take take that as read. Um, I, I just feel, even without going into all the details, this just feels like the same narrative we have over and over and over again. Um, Rates like taxes are presented as terrible, um, burdensome things. And uh, for some reason, we always believe that the private sector can run these critical infrastructural businesses better than local government can. And um, I'm literally just going to quote your tweet, Kyle, that Ephesa retweeted. Um, why is it the left and the public that always have to compromise with the right wing? That's always the case. It's always um, the right wing make unreasonable demands and we just have to find a compromise in order to get the best situation or the best result out of the situation. And it just means we keep getting dragged further and further and further right. And yeah, the Clearly, the compromise is not working. We never get any return on it. So um just has to be a, a better or different way of doing things. How about you? Jumping on that, oh, yeah. Carl, just briefly. Um, so I think you're, you're totally right, Stephanie. And a, a lot of the um, kind of messages that I think uh, have been pushed that have kind of encouraged this way of thinking uh, is, you know, a couple of things, a lot of fear-mongering around debt, which I think you talked about earlier, Kyle. Um, there's been this this uh, idea that's been pushed and quite explicitly by some councillors that Auckland Council has to balance its budget by law. Um, so I would recommend to all of our listeners, please go back and listen to the interview with Max Harris, where he ex- actually explains that this is not it's not as black and white as that. And actually, there are there are, there's quite a wide range of exceptions to that uh, rule, um, which which. Max argues, and um, I agree with him, apply in this case quite quite easily. Um, but even with that, the alternative budgets that were put forward, right, did still balance the budget uh, without selling the airport shares and with um, without as many cuts to expenditure. And I think this is this goes to your point, Stephanie, is there's this kind of allergy to uh, rates, right? And um, this is allergy to debt. And... I really think that yeah, there's a lot of work to do to to do uh, to campaign and to build, I guess, the left's confidence around these issues because 
you know, I think we could see in the, in the machinations at council that the left wasn't allied enough to to present a confident alternative that they could, you know, there's 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 all this constant fear mongering around um, the left's economic illiteracy, basically, um, and I think they, you know, parts of the council fell for that, um, and we need to do more to build you know, a movement around an alternative left-wing economics that is confident around, you know, public debt, um, asset ownership, and is um, proactive around asset ownership. It's not just anti-austerity, but it's like, as Max said on the, on that interview, once again, he said, it's, it's not, it's not about it just being anti-austerity, but pro-public ownership. Like why should we own public assets and for what purpose? And so I think we need to work on those messages um, and why we actually need to expand the involvement of local government and central government in our lives, because, you know, rather than just minimizing cuts, you know, and we need to have the confidence present to present an alternative message. So, yeah, I think that's um, super important. Yeah. I, think... I want to jump on that too. Sorry, Carl, I'm just going to. No, get in, Ch jump right in. Charge on in here. Um, and now <laughs> all good. Um, I absolutely agree with what Paul just said. And it's something that I really did think about when we've had some issues uh, over the, the previous term on Wellington City Council of having some uh, councillors who were endorsed by the Green Party, but fundamentally ended up again voting for budgets that were um, cutting cycleway funding and all focused on balancing the budget, not having rates increases. I think we have sadly broad problem on the left with people still buying into <clears throat> the deeply right-wing neoliberal idea that the economy is supreme and that means that even people who can have really good principles or really good um not necessarily analysis but they have really good ideas of, of how things should work will still back down if the answer is but the economics. And I think we saw that with some of the Wellington City councillors who were basically saying, no, I love cycleways, I love libraries, I love all these public services, but we have to balance the budget. Um, it's, it's like that neoliberal meme always trumps our principles. And what we have to understand is that our principles are about a different way of doing economics and they're not a nice to have after we let the accountants decide what the actual priorities are. And it's, you know, the classic thing as well. It's always about balancing the budget, but there's always the things that just never, ever, ever get cut. And for some reason, it's always the the social services and the things that people value that are on the chopping block first. Yeah, it certainly isn't um, consultancy fees, uh, you know, or, or like other things um, of that sort. And I think that really gets down to one of the major issues with this whole Auckland budget situation as well, which was apart from just this kind of uh, framework of neoliberalism that is informing every decision uh, that people make at, at a very baseline level, throughout the media coverage um, and the political discourse, that was almost all that was getting mainstream coverage as well. And it meant that the people whose politics aligned with that were just able to drop stuff into the public domain um, and have that be the ostensible facts of the matter. This is, you know, we're not, I'm not happy about where we've ended up um, with this particular process, but I'm incredibly heartened by the work that the left um, 
has done in this space. It's probably one of the bigger successes I can think of in recent history where a an adjacent media campaign has been able to get information on the ground uh, and have a, a noticeable effect, have that force its way into uh, public discussion uh, rather than being completely shut out. I think even to members of the public who aren't political and media tragics uh, like myself, some of these messages were getting through and the media coverage of it was starting to look pretty unhinged. I, I don't, yeah, it's been interesting. And I, I, I hope it, it bodes well coming into the rest, like coming into the actual election campaign um, in terms of where people are looking uh, to be informed because yeah, things have things are very weird in our media space at the moment. Let yeah, me just I, say one thing to that. Um, that just it sort of occurs to me that it's probably quite relevant. Asset sales and cuts are actually really unpopular with the public. So we have this kind of strange contradictory dynamic. Uh, it seems like it seems to be happening in, in local government and at um at the sort of national level as well where like, people don't like asset sales. And we saw that during the kind of key regime where there was like even a referendum about it. Um, and they, they kind of ignored it as, as their want. Um, and I think that government was not really a neoliberal government in a lot of ways. It was a corporatist government. But what's sort of starting to, I think, be really clear is that because they've got this background noise of these neoliberal arguments and sort of cuts, 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 uh, they, it never has to be justified or explained. It's sort of seen as common sense and obvious. So even though people like dislike it and it doesn't make sense, there's this base kind of framework of just like sort of skipping logic and going straight to this kind of obvious conclusion, which is very easy to shove into media headlines or to make kind of statements on the podium about. So there's this kind of this weird contradictory thing going on where people are like, they kind of accept that cuts are necessary, but um, they really don't like seeing services rolled back or kind of losing out things that they um, they actually value and are an important part of their lives. Like libraries are obvious one, citizens advice bureau, all those things that are actually like really useful and valued and important to people. Um, and like no one's going to say I want that to be cut. Well, very few people would. Maybe mm. um, people in Epsom slightly different. Um, but um, and I'm just using Epsom as an umbrella for talking about that particular demographic that votes for ACT. Um, but that's a minority, right? That's um, most Aucklanders are like they're, they're anti-cuts, but yet there's this, this logic of cuts seems to make sense to people. I'm, I'm kind of confused about that. I feel like I, th th that point about how the left needs to do a lot of work to get through that. I think that's really salient because um, we have to kind of accept this background noise of neoliberalism and and even though it's like easy to say it's died it's a zombie ideology there's still work to do to actually justify that public investment and explain and connect all the dots and kind of make people's people's intuition intuition actually connect to like hey this this makes sense this is a logical thing such good points yeah and you know it's funny with these zombie ideologies eh? they always they always find a way of like sneaking their way back in and and infiltrating and i mean they're really powerful they're powerful narratives and there's like like stephanie was saying earlier that there's that whole sort of there's no alternative um and that was even talked about that uh, that sentiment was talked about in the mainstream media and i think to your point kyle 
it is promising that the left kind of alternative budgets and the campaigning work did start to filter through and influence people's thinking, influence councillors' thinking, uh, got into mainstream media a little bit. And so that is really promising. But I, I want to come to the point about political coalitions, and you touched on this, Mark. This was like really, really interesting, I think. And it, it's to your point about how actually in terms of asset sales and services cuts in particular, particularly cuts to core services, right, that people rely on, um, there is a, a strong public opposition to these things. But nevertheless, there is a, a there's extremely low voter turnout at local elections. There's disproportionate influence of uh, wealthy landowning ratepayers and the, you know the Epsom electorate types uh, in this process. Um, but I think Wayne Brown's political strategy that we we're talking about earlier, he knows right. He knows that those things are, are popular, um, that those services are popular, and asset sales are unpopular. And I think that that came through in his. Um, you know, when, when he was moderating his position, like he, he was saying, I'm listening to Aucklanders, I'm reducing these cuts that they care deeply about, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I, I think that was part of a strategy to, to present himself as the kind of sensible, reasonable character in all of this. And I think that that goes to Stephanie's point earlier as well around how, you know, there, there's, this, there's this economic common sense uh, that these people present, and that, and that we need to um, offer a, a proper alternative to. But let's not forget as well that when they asked for budget feedback from the Auckland electorate, they basically had to push poll yes. to get any kind of data that they could use to justify uh, their decisions. It was it was pretty incredible and also incredibly underreported. Yeah, terribly flawed process. I think um, you're totally right. One one more point, and I'll stop ranting. But on the political coalitions thing. There, there was when it came to those alternative budget proposals, which would have reduced cuts from the final position. They would have prevented the sale of the uh, of of the airport. There was a, I think that there was a potential for a majority to back those, uh, and the 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 important um, coalitions there. So there was Wayne Walker and John Watson, who who are right wing councillors, right, uh, based in Albany Ward, um, which is on on Auckland's North Shore. Um, and they uh, normally are like, you know, go on about council's wasteful spending and high debt, and they, they want to, you know, those classic kind of neoliberal arguments, right? But they are, were very anti-asset sales because they got a lot of feedback, um, obviously from their constituents, and and they strongly argued against asset sales to the point where they actually supported Lotta Fully and Angela Dalton's amendments, right, which increased rates slightly and increased debt. So they were willing to do those things to stop the sale of Auckland Airport. Now, uh, the reason why those amendments failed is because Councillor Richard Hills, Shane Henderson, and Julie Ferry, so those are, um, so Richard Hills is an, is an independent, but he's a Labour Party member. Um, he is an independent on the North Shore, but um, Shane Henderson ran on a Labour ticket, and Julie Ferry ran on a City Vision ticket. Now, City Vision, also their policy is actually to oppose um, privatization uh, of Auckland Airport and Ports of Auckland. This is why she abstained, right? She abstained on the final budget decision, yes, which is an which is an important point. And and I think that she did make some really good changes to, particularly around the early childhood education. Probably don't have time to get into that, but um, she she did make some good changes in that negotiation process. Uh, and she abstained, and she abstained in the end rather than supporting the final budget, yes. But she did oppose those alternate budgets that would have reduced cuts and 
um, prevented the sale of the of the airport. So instead of those three councillors working with the likes of John Watson and and Wayne Walker and the other left wing councillors like Fully and Dalton and Al Filipina and so on to build a coalition against the sale uh, and against further cuts because <laughs> it's important that the final budget had $83 million worth of cuts in it, right? And those uh, proposals, those alternate proposals that were put forward had less. So they weren't, the, the final decision was not about reducing cuts, uh, you know, as it was claimed to be by Richard Hills. Um, they could have spent that time, uh, their time over the last few weeks, my understanding is that Richard Hills has spent the last few weeks trying to convince other councillors to support the partial sale of the airport, not to oppose it. He could have instead been using using that time and his political capital to build a coalition against uh, those things, and he did not. So it's really important that we, you know, back to that point about uh, the left actually changing the way that it does these things. We need to figure out a way to actually hold these councils to account. You know, I don't think that we can just say, oh, you know, they did their best uh, and so on. No, it's not good enough, frankly. And, you know, I think that people should not vote for these people next uh, next council election. And some people will tell me, oh, you know, Paul, you're like, you're going to split the vote, you're going to get the right in, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to see that. But honestly, like when it comes to putting through a budget, which is like what the right want anyway, what's the difference, you know? Um, I would rather see left-wing people, anti-austerity people standing up against these candidates, right? And building their credibility in the electorate. And then, you know, they can end up... Um, knocking them knocking them out you know so yeah yeah i think the um <clears throat> the real one of the real issues there is is that a lot of people in the left of center have really bought into the idea that their credibility rests in showing that they'll work with the right or showing that they will be fiscally responsible and um yeah we we all know uh where that goes and it just goes into further creeping politics towards the right and normalizing right-wing economic ways of thinking yeah and it doesn't deliver for for the electorate and we, we've you know this is something i i must tweet at least once a day the electorate is far more progressive than the current crop of electoral representatives it just is on like basically every metric it's it's sad and embarrassing um, there's no alternative kyle no <laughs> and, and you know it don't like it is on progressives and the left to to just deal with the environment that is out there like the political environment exists as it is we we have to find a way to to organize and build and and force our way into politics that doesn't make it any less frustrating and especially when uh presumptive progressives uh, who do have political power fail to implement or find ways forward that help to build that base uh, within the electorate um, and kind of into future elections. I mean, these people get re-elected probably um, for showing compromise because it's just that drift to centre. Um, and, and this is what you see with a lot of politicians who have been in elected positions for a long time because and, and you know like this is this is just human relationship stuff they're talking to a lot of constituents and a lot of the constituents are right wing and I, some of the constituents are left wing and some of these people have more time to uh be sending them a text message every two minutes uh while they're in uh the the budget meeting room uh, i think uh shane henderson was saying he was getting feedback while he sat there um from his constituents i mean okay cool man 
but can we please, as as po- politically active leftists and elected representatives, have a theory of power that understands what the right wing in in this country and you know the rest of the world wants to do, um, and what they will do, and whether or not they're acting in good faith? Because spoilers, they'll never they're not going to act in good faith. They'll never compromise um, for any definition of incrementalism that is actually progressive. And the end result is that, as Stephanie was saying, it moves in the other direction consistently. Uh, And often while being told that this is actually a gain for the left somehow, because it helped build political capital, which we're never going to burn. And I mean, I guess, unless there are further uh, points people want to make about the budget, this is a good good part uh, to move over into that other conversation, which is around how do we talk about this stuff? How do we get it into the media? Uh, And especially in the last two or three weeks, how do we do that when it seems like the media are going out of their way to defend right-wing politics? Because, Mark, you were talking about just before, like the kind of this background neoliberalism. This stuff's being foregrounded at the moment. You know, it's, it's... it's not background. It's it's being very clearly put front and center as the uh, as, as a pillar around which the discourse must uh, take place. And that's in the in the last couple of weeks, especially being applied to like culture war shit as well. And it's some of the most bizarre media wide uh, stuff I I think I've seen uh, here in New Zealand in, in a long long time. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm just really demotivated by a lot of the behaviour that I'm seeing at the moment. Um, and I guess, like, my thing is always trying to step back and, and look at the big picture because um, I, go, I go on Twitter and it's just, like, the, a flood of, of, of just, like, whatever the day's drama is. But, like, I agree. I've been noticing in the past and, like, I've been, I've been trying to stay out of it, but I found myself yesterday going on about... <laughs> some of this stuff um and I think I was even talking about um about Tina there's no alternative because it's just really standing out to me that um that there is a bit of a foregrounding of the stuff I feel like the um there has been um for a while I think there was a, a sense of like we will see what the Ardern government will do you know we've had we've had this key government in power for a long time things have been eroding things are falling apart there's this kind of background sense of like we need a change um, and like what what is going to happen and there was a sort of hopefulness at that time um, I remember walking along Lampton Quay um, in 2017 um, just just after the election and I was in Wellington for a conference and it was just this feeling of like possibility oh my god what what can we do now like what is going to change that is neoliberalism like really real. going to be over yeah yeah um, and like I don't discount that I think it was a real a, like a real tangible sense um, and I actually, I almost ran into James Shaw and, um, and Tori Farnow walking along Lampton Key, and I wanted to high five them. <laughs> but like after a few years, we see, you know, that, that um, it's not really about the political vision. It's not really about the kind of what the executive is doing. It's this kind of background. I described it as a background noise, but I think it's, it also does have a lot to do with the way that the country has been configured and set up to just perpetuate 
these kinds of structures. So we have these local government controls around balanced budgets. Uh, we have the Public Finance Act, all of this stuff in place that is kind of immovable. Uh, and very, very few people uh, in the media are, are talking about that stuff. But yet there's this constant whining and screeching and, um, and sort of flapping hands and waving arms about, about consultants or about uh, the way that the government can't deliver or the public service can't deliver or this or that or you know, corporatization of the public service has gone too far. Um, and um, there's all sorts of incoherent uh, noise around that. I think there's a sense on both the right and the left that things aren't working, but I don't feel like we've really engaged with some of the, the, the kind of core values and the, the, the actual substantial changes that need, need to take place um, to actually move things along. Um, and so it feels like, yeah, that's why maybe this is just me kind of waffling because I don't want to get into like Michael Wood's shares or like, um, or the pro-natalism stuff, um, weird, weird rhetoric coming out of people, um, like actually way more extreme than, than what Luxon was saying. People, people um, like right-wing people online making these very Silicon Valley, very dark, like kind of natalist arguments and then turning around and going, oh, but I think that's a really bad thing to say in an election year. <laughs> it's like, what the hell is going on? But I think it is just really coming from this, this lack of direction, this lack of, of purpose, this lack of focus at the moment, and this sense of like, it's an election year, things are building up, we need to raise the intensity. But there's like, there's no vision, there's no direction. It's, it feels very rudderless at the moment. And I don't know, maybe that's a great opportunity for, for the left, but I also think, you know, everything we've been saying, it's a really difficult time because we are seeing, you know, with this lack of vision and direction, um, what, you know, what tide flows in to sort of fill that, that space, it's, it's the New Zealand initiative. It's all these existing sort of rogenomics, kind of post-rogenomics ideas that are just kind of out there um, and people just, you know, supporting that as a way of as a way of thinking as a way of doing as a way of being even um, because th because there isn't an alternative because that's the the common sense um, and it's just it's I don't know it's, it feels really bleak but at the same time it feels like it, it could be a, a great opportunity because of this this really this really strong kind of lack of like of anything. What's your sense of that being Stephanie as you know someone who's been involved in comms stuff for a long time and and now as a candidate trying to get cut through in this kind of environment. Oh, wow. You do ask the small questions, don't you, Carl? <laughs> the, the, the easy yes, no ones. Um, I think it kind of goes back to exactly what we were saying with the budget. Um, it's not, it's, I don't think sometimes it's even as strong as there is no alternative or this is just common sense. I think there's um, a really strong narrative and the key government didn't pioneer it, but they were intensely good at reinforcing it. And Labour have leaned into it when it's convenient for them. But it's the idea that government fundamentally can't do anything. Uh, government can't act. Government is simply a, a passive thing that sits there. And what acts is the economy. And um, so somehow government just has to be getting out of the way of what is good for the economy. And that is much harder to fight against. It, it invisibilizes right-wing ideology. It invisibilizes the fact that a lot of these economic ideas and frameworks are simply frameworks. They're not immutable cosmic reality. 
Um, so when we're providing an alternative, we're actually having to fight against the very idea that a government or a council could take action on something. And uh, when I say Labour's leaned into it, I mean, you particularly look at uh, their, their failure to meaningfully reverse child poverty over, over six years. Yes, they've taken steps. I can see my Twitter mentions already, but there's a baseline idea that we can't do anything to really get rid of it. There'll always be some poverty. We can just tinker at the edges. It wouldn't be um, acceptable to burn our political capital to do something as radical as tax the wealthy and increase benefits. So for me, obviously, being the comms nerd, the way I try to fight against that is by punching up the language. We did an amazing workshop. Anyone who's heard me talk about comms is already knowing who I'm going to name drop here. An amazing workshop when I was at the EPMU with Anot Shinkar Osorio, who's a fantastic political communicator. Um, and she made us go through all of our media releases and delete all of the weasel words. Because, again, it goes to that lack of confidence in our ideas. We don't just say we need to change the economic settings of this country. We say things like, we aim to ensure that everyone has the opportunity to strive for better. And that's just a really safe way of not actually committing yourself to a big, brave idea like there shouldn't be billionaires. Um, and really the the right, the centre-right, the neoliberal, the corporate um, political ideologies all have a massive head start on us because they've had 40, 50 years at this point of entrenching those ideas right down into the language we use to discuss politics. We talk about balancing budgets and we talk about the tax burden and how people need tax relief. We've accepted the idea that the word benefit is actually a bad thing if you're talking about helping a poor person. And one of the ways we have to start fighting that is with our language. And um, I think um, taxpayers' money is also... Taxpayers' um, money. Yeah, there's the red mist descending in front of my eyes. Thank you, Paul. Um, so all of these things that are basically just memes that are entrenched and they're knee-jerk. And I, um, I was actually a bit distracted. I'm sorry, when you were talking, Mark. I was trying to figure out which uh, journalist I was specifically going to call out for this one because it was during the 2014 election. So I think 10 years is enough time for this to not be a, a personal attack, but I'm mostly sure it was Corin Dan, um, who in one of the leaders' debates or in an interview with Matria um, Ture, used the phrase, if we go into a recession again and need to pass an austerity budget, would you support it? And it's like, what are, what are the levels of assumption built into that question, Corin? It's, it's the political equivalent of, have you stopped beating your dog yet? It's, there's no way to answer it because the question itself directs you to the only politically appropriate answer. And being able to reject that cleanly and strongly and get the message out there um, that actually all, all of the baseline assumptions of that question are, are rubbish is really important. And obviously that's the skill set I bring. There's also incredibly important skill sets like community organizing and coalition building, which I need to add to my repertoire, but right now I'm the word nerd. So <laughs> that's that's where I sit. It's, yeah, it, it's funny going back that far, right? Um, and Materia in particular was very, very good 
uh, at answering those kind of questions and and foregrounding the importance of a different direction. And that's why the the media did her in, you know, like that's that's part of the whole thing. And, you know, we're, we're talking about the way that's often delivered uh, in an interview uh, as as creating a, a very narrow space uh, for po- political reality. But in the last, and that, you know, this has been the case since the 80s, this has been happening for a long time and, and been getting progressively worse um, as groups like the New Zealand Initiative and uh, the Taxpayers Union and all, all these other like uh, right-wing astroturf groups um, essentially entrench themselves within our media environments um, and and just get to publish the most ludicrous columns uh, that uh, go completely unchallenged um, for for no reason that I can really think of that the media bosses should be able to justify. But that's that's by the by. Uh, so that's been happening for a while. But now in the last two or three weeks, we've been seeing it become less a matter of course and more this active defense of not only some of this this stuff around the budget, um, but of politicians themselves when they quote unquote misspeak on some like pretty, I don't know if I'm going to say important topics, but like sensitive, sensitive topics uh, in, in current international discourse. And sorry, Mark, I know you, you didn't want to get into this. But it's, you know, it's it's dominated the media as well. This has been the other main thing alongside the budget is Christopher Luxon bringing up reproduction again, and I, I'm not sure I've seen anyone in the media not come to his defence on it. Well, I think there's a couple of things there. So, like, I, I, yeah, again, without trying to go, go into the like the, the the nonsense around it, I think what stood out to me was that it wasn't quite clear at first. Um, so I think um, uh, that there was a column that was published sort of defending it um, by, um, by our, our good friend Jack. And then it turned out he was actually emceeing the event and he kind of, he was the person who, who framed it as a joke and sort of saved it and then kind of published this opinion column sort of justifying it or sort of post facto rationalizing it. But that context wasn't actually clear in the column. So there's like, there's this, this immediate lack of context which is really about the the media environment and how there's a sort of revolving door between these kind of business community events and the publishing cycle of journalism um, and who's who's reporting on politics and and then who's who's actually kind of involved in in emceeing and, and organizing and um, so there's like a little bit of context there and then of course there's this lack of context around the discussion of like why is it a bunch of Pakiha men talking about um, basically issues around reproductive rights. Like that just seems wrong. Um, that seems like, like maybe there's like some voices missing in the media there. Um, and all these, all these um, Pakia men sort of justifying playing it down. Um, like there's a big missing, missing piece there. It's like, why are people twitchy about this? They're twitchy about it for pretty good reasons because this is a continuing question that's been raised around the fundamentalist faction in the Nats. And it came up, you know, during Simon Bridges' leadership. Um, and like we had people, people you know, quite like long-term, very involved um, political communication people in the Nats, in the media saying, this is bad. Like, well, this is a problem for the Nats. Like, what are we going to do? Um, and, you know, trying to hijack it. And that whole Todd 
Mueller thing, I think, was was actually partly driven by motivation to to get rid of these people, but it's it seems like that's entrenched now. Yeah, um, like I remember that, back that then just it was... hasn't been that hasn't been part of the context. It's like um, the the presentation of of Luxon as this kind of the slick business guy, like overrules this kind of background context and why people are. Um, especially women, like really worried about the signals that are coming out of it. I think back back in Simon Bridges' time, we had like um, Janet Wilson and, and Matthew Hudden were both yeah, kind of coming out against what, the evangelical. Yeah, that's what I was referring women. to. Yeah. A couple of columns in, in Newsroom, um, I think, that were just like scathing of it and just warning of it, like being really dire. And I think like broadly... Like, that, liberal and anti-liberal. That wing is still against it, but there's like this expediency to it now. But also the international context has significantly shifted with what's happening in the States uh, and the UK around some of this stuff. What What's the feeling like down in Wellington around this, Stephanie? Because... Yeah, I was just going to like jump in and be like, as the woman on the call. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's really important to note that like when you hear the joke or when you hear him say uh, that he thinks abortion is tantamount to murder um, if you're a, a cis woman or someone with a uterus whose life has been pretty much defined by the fact you have a uterus because our society is fundamentally um, gendered in that way uh, you you hear that and you're like oh oh there's the red flag but as you say Kyle I don't think you need to have a uterus or um, be a person of reproductive age to hear those red flags in this day and age in current year 2023 because like have we not did we not all I mean not all of us but those of us who are still here did we not all survive four years of Donald Trump can we not open our eyes and see what the rise of fascism and white supremacy and the slow creeping or the faster and faster creeping of those ideas into our discourse is doing like I, I don't know how to explain how obvious it is that people always start with jokes when they're trying to get a terrible idea across because if they can just laugh it off and say oh well the joke fell flat then you can't hold them accountable for their beliefs or for the um, ideas that they're pushing um, we know it starts with jokes and then it becomes not jokes. And I mean, this is built on top of, given his um, earlier comments about abortion and the whole question around uh, his particular house of worship, we're also meant to buy into this ridiculous idea that Christopher Luxon's personal faith and morality will somehow have no impact on how he governs as prime minister. Oh no, he'll just... He'll just follow the evidence and have evidence-based policy, you know, another phrase that I'm sure we all love. Um, <laughs> it's just ludicrous and it's a pattern of behavior. And sorry, if you are a politician, particularly if you are a politician who is a party leader and the leader of the opposition, if, if you are vaguely competent, you know you can't keep making those kind of jokes, even if they are jokes, even if they were the most innocuous thing. The first couple of times you get pinged for being or giving every impression of being an extreme pronatalist, fundamentalist Christian, you got to start watching yourself. You've got to stop making the jokes. And if your comms people are any good, they will 
be black hatting you and prepping you and making sure that you're not slipping up because well I guess what I'm getting to is at this point it can only be deliberate and it can only be done in the knowledge that there's a huge number of people apparently including Jack Tame who will write it off and say it's not a big deal um and it, it fundamentally to me just all comes down to when you've got a lot of women particularly on Twitter talking about these red flags and this process of normalizing these ideas and the centricity of reproduction in women's lives pushed by um, power structures, politics and media to then just still have this, this organized response saying, no, no, it's not a big deal. Calm down, ladies. Just feels like the typical silencing of women and the uh, marginalizing of women on a grand scale, which, you know, only makes us kind of more certain of what's going on here because it's eating its own tail at this point. What do we think that it is that this is horse race politics stuff where some of these, uh, some of the people in the media are like, okay, we have to have this. This guy is the opposition leader. He's who we're having to run against Hipkins. We have to make sure that he's got a steady base so we can have a good race or uh, and, and, you know, I, I think there is some of that where they're like, okay, we, we have to prop them up. Like, otherwise, um, our democracy will collapse kind of shit. But as you say, Stephanie, like, the context is all right there and being actively ignored at this point. Uh, I mean, look what's happening with DeSantis in Florida. You know, like, this guy who is going to be running for the nomination for the Republican Party uh, and is using very much some of this similar language while uh, driving legislative changes that, that, are, that are turning back the clock 50 plus years on reproductive rights. Why do you think, or how do you think this stuff can just be ignored to this extent? I, it's, it's really shocking to me. I think some of it does go to that horse race idea, but it's less about we need to have a proper contest and I think it's actually more about some people genuinely think that the point is just the race and it doesn't really matter what the horses are or what it means when one or the other of them wins it's genuinely it, it also goes to the idea that people just say what they need to to get elected and you also get this from the center left well we just need to say what we need to to get elected but then once we're in government we don't actually do any of the radical things yeah, that we said we'd do that people would vote for. And it, it's a weird dishonesty to me um, that the idea that you say all these things because that's what you need to do to get elected, but somehow we're meant to believe that the voting public also know that it's all lies and don't have any genuine expectation that you'll do it. Um, here I need to plug a friend of mine, friend of Paul's, friend of the podcast, Nicole Gallagher, who's also my campaign manager, who did her master's thesis on the whole idea of mandate and like how much people think a party should stick to what it promised to deliver in an election and weirdly enough left-wing people I'm massively oversimplifying so she can't listen to this episode because she'll get so mad weirdly <laughs> enough left-wing people are much more inclined to believe that parties should stick to what they said they'd do unless they kind of get a lot of evidence to the contrary about you know, it, it having a bad impact or um, not being the correct course of action. So, yeah, it, it just seems like there's a real distancing, not just around this, but around a lot of issues. You know, we treat child poverty rates like they're 
a thought experiment and whichever way someone says they'll make the line go on the graph is actually irrelevant in terms of, oh, did they say it well? Oh, did the audience clap? Um, oh, did that get across the line with Middle New Zealand? Um, and we see it with, I don't know, I guess pretty much everything. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it's it's the horse race for the sake of the horse race. I think there's like a lot of common threads here, right? um, particularly around like these these ideas of the, the premises that the media just accept as like given. Um, and actually not just the media too, but like I think, politicians buy into this as well obviously not you stephanie um but it's like no i'm perfect <laughs> well you've just you've just been um uh giving very convincing points as to why you don't buy into this but like the the kind of given conditions of the media and the political environment that we that we exist in right and you know i think that we were talking before about we have to be realistic around the dominance of neoliberal narratives in order to like understand why they're dominant and how we can combat them but there's this kind of like with this horse race point that um you're making kyle and you know there, there's this kind of given understanding that labor have three terms and national have three terms and then you know we have to have like you know and like you were saying stephanie as well there's this sort of this given idea that christopher luxon you know is not going to pay any attention to his deep you know religious beliefs or the constituency that's behind those and and uh, you know constantly asking him to take specific positions no he's going to have some sensible political idea and just act on that it's like no why like why why are these things just accepted um as the sort of given environment that is going to happen and things are going to fall into place and and i think where politicians tend to fall over on this is, is when they navigate the media they don't uh give themselves the ability like well they don't accept that they have an influence on that environment themselves and like we all like all of us right people that are um you know campaigning people that are in politics people that are in the media we all shape and build this environment um like we're all responsible for building it it's a social structure um and there, there are no things like you're saying before stephanie there's no things that exist somewhere else in the cos cosmos that are like physics you know part of the physical environment that we just can't change like no we create this um and so i think like politicians and the media need to be more cognizant of that and like cognizant of the premises that they're accepting uh, and questioning those things and i don't want to i, I want to be extremely clear here that i am not currently directly comparing christopher luxon and donald trump however um i think we saw the same kind of thing when donald trump was running around he was saying horrific things. We were finding out horrific things about him. He was giving a very consistent picture of someone who said and believed and did horrific things fully in line with a ideology of selfish, individualist, capitalist greed. And then he gets into power because no one actually seriously interrogates or calls out anything. Um, they just broadcast him live because that's how you get viewers and then he becomes president and then it was like four years of the US media continuing to be in denial about who he was and that he was actually doing as elected the things he said he was going to do as elected and he didn't just have the day he finally became president he he was just the guy who we knew he was but we were all expected to participate in this shared dream that the status quo will simply endure and everything will be fine. Um, and, and what's happened? Well, even though he's out, politics in the United States has been dragged much further to the right and 
a lot of the worst things are now slightly more acceptable and only growing more and more acceptable or at least louder and louder. It's not like a majority of people really changed, but what is an acceptable norm in media and politics in the United States fundamentally changed. So that's that's the danger is we just keep assuming that everything will turn out all right because the political settings and economic settings of the Anglosphere are pretty much steady for all of our lifetimes um, and we haven't really had radical upheaval therefore we kind of assume radical upheaval will never happen therefore fundamentalist fringe extremist views getting louder and louder in our politics must not be a big deal and they are yeah it's i've referred to this a, a little bit um in previous casts but there's this real sense from the outside that the people who report on politics and you know this is this is global but particularly, particularly in, in Wellington, um, in the gallery, um, and in the way that the New Zealand media deals with this stuff, consider at some level that most politicians are going to get up on the podium and deliver an Aaron Sorkin-esque kind of, kind of speech. Um, it's very collegial. No one would really do anything that would actively harm people because that's somehow beyond the pale, despite the increasing evidence that we're, we're past that point now. You know, we, we are coming to like several levels of crunch on, on these big political issues in, in human civilization uh, as as we kind of enter this polycrisis stage. So some of these people are not here for, for good reasons, you know, and, and I think we should be allowed to at least talk about that or at least consider that that might be the case. If people have a value set that if, implemented has bad outcomes we need to be discussing that and i don't it doesn't matter if you think they're going to be able to get it over the line or not like like these people will find a way they'll find a way to do it um and we know there's this increasing amount of bad faith engagement especially from the right wing and capital classes uh one of the other kind of major things of this uh last week has been uh, in, in the in the politics and media space, uh, in terms of what's just being published with, without interrogation, is the current soon-to-be ex-president of Federated Farmers joining the ACT Party as a candidate. All the while, Federated Farmers PR lines being published as articles verbatim, essentially, by Radio New Zealand, uh, saying that uh, we like the look of the ACT Party, uh, and then I think just yesterday, it turns out uh, that Hoggard, who's who's this um, now ACT candidate, uh, has been a party member since 2019, during which time he was involved in negotiations with the government around agricultural emissions, which federated farmers then helped to sink. You know, this is like, this is really clear stuff at this point why why are you taking them seriously at all why are you publishing anything they say without rinsing them how is this making it into the political discourse as anything other than right-wing organizing to undermine political structures it's obscene but the conflict of interest was managed ethically (laughs) yeah i think there's um 
I, I do want to flag, and this is this is me just riding in on my middle-class horse uh, to defend the media. Um, I do think there are some structural issues that our our journalists are struggling with. And, you know, you can, you can talk about clickbait, you can talk about the Facebook bullshit pivot to video, um, you can talk about just how openly fraudulent most online advertising si uh, systems are. Um, the, the fact is we're in a situation where uh, a lot of our reporters who want to do good work are being expected to churn out huge amounts of content, keep that front page fresh throughout the day. It's not just what is the what are the 10 stories we're covering tomorrow, it's what are the 15 stories you personally are getting on the website today, and that's just unsustainable. And, of course, um, if you get what appears to be a well-written, fairly neutral press release from um, an organisation, the one I was going to call out for this week was Foodstuffs New Zealand declaring the retail crime wave in a story that involved no comment from, I don't know, police, the Ministry of Justice, Auckland Action Against Poverty, other groups who might have a view as to why shoplifting may or may not be on the increase. Um, it, it, I can see where the temptation comes in to just be like, look, this sounds normal, especially in this environment where those right-wing corporate ideas are so normalized. So your ears don't perk up the way they do, say, if you're reading a Reuters piece about Ukraine on the Radio New Zealand website and suddenly you notice that the language is a bit weird. Um, and, and the thing is, is anyone can actually do this. I've been a union comms person. I have had my press releases not uh, copy-pasted verbatim, but I have had large chunks of press releases get put into stories because they I'm very good at my job. So they were well-written, they were engaging, they had a really good hook to them. And the journalist didn't have time to like ring up 15 different employers to find one who was going to get a comment on it. The trouble is the right have the resources mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to put out more of those press releases. The Taxpayers Union exists as a professional press release OIA generating body. And if you are a political reporter and you just need to make deadline, it's a, it's a reasonable thing to have the instinct to go, maybe we can just whack this one up. Except then you get pinged by things. And the one I also wanted to mention was um, Business New Zealand just lying, lying about the International Labour mm -hmm. Organization and fair pay agreements. Absolutely making things up. And you still get FPS quoted. They still and get, yet put still stuff get quoted. Like surely there's a line where you get pinged and it's like, sorry, Kirk, we just have to publish twice as many stories that Jordan gives us from now on. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so there are those structural issues that I do want to say. I don't I don't think it's always malicious. I think there are some news organizations that have much more of a clear agenda in what they publish than others. But plenty are just under huge crunch dealing with a shift in the media environment that we still haven't figured out how to make work for good public service journalism. I absolutely agree with you. And I think sometimes people might get the wrong end of the stick with how vociferous I am about this stuff, but I certainly have a lot of um, empathy for people working in this space. I see this as a, an, industry, an industry problem um, and as a media boss's problem more than I see it as a reporting or journalistic problem. I, I don't even think like the majority of the stuff is malicious or even close. As you say, like water runs downhill, right? Um, that said, 
the fact that this is the case is a, it is an enormous problem. Um, and I, I, I don't think there's anyone in the media who shouldn't be aware of that by now um, and be doing what they can to at least try and resolve from it somewhat. And, and it comes down to that stuff like where is the line for some of these organisations continuing to re- misrepresent um, like Business New Zealand has, like the TPU constantly does, like uh, the Free Speech Union uh, got pinged for just the other week. Look, like just making shit up, essentially. Uh, and then, you know, the next day even, uh, getting a verbatim headline um, in the press. The ACT Party gets it a lot as well. Um, yeah, they're, they're very good at hacking the media space. But if I was in media, if I was a, an editor or if I was one of the people heading up one of these outlets... I, I don't want to be hacked. I, I, I don't want to be in a situation where it's so fucking easy for like extremists, which is what ACT are, um, as far as their policy outcomes are concerned, to just insert lines into the discourse, uh, like at, at will, essentially. And that's, I think, what frustrates me the most is that there's no concerted effort in a lot of our mainstream media uh, at, at an organizational and structural level to, to try and grapple with that. It's this, okay, no, this is how the playing field is, so let's try and maintain it. Um, and, and the, um, it's the reality race. is, Kyle, that I think the media the media have suffered from cuts and austerity uh, in Aotearoa as much as anyone else mm-hmm. has. They're mm-hmm. under-resourced. They just they don't have the sub-editors anymore. They don't have the systems and structures to actually be able to make those calls um, on, a, you know, on a rapid feedback. Yeah, I mean... Yes, and also they have like multiple ex act MPs writing them columns every week. You know that that's like a that's a very high level decision um, to forefront and and platform just like pretty ridiculous shit. Um, and, and that goes beyond just the reporting, the reporting stuff. And I know this is we're going to get into a, a way bigger conversation here, and we should wrap it up. So we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, everyone, for for joining us. Thank you for. Um, Popping on the cast, Stephanie. No worries. We'd be happy to come back anytime you want to discuss trashy 90s movies, which is really more <laughs> my forte. <laughs> Do you want to um, just give a shout out to the campaign or if people want to come yeah. and help you out, uh, where can they find you? Well, people can find me on uh, Twitter or TikTok, which I am not too old for. I'm an elder millennial and I'm very cool. <laughs> uh, as Boots Theory, yes, it's a Pratchett reference. I told you I was cool. Um, Stephanie Rogers for Oharu on Facebook. Uh, and if you check out the page or my Twitter, we are currently selling tickets for our campaign launch slash fundraiser, which is a poll show and has angered Bob McCoskey, Chantel Baker, Annie O'Brien and Martin Bradbury. That's how you know it's going to be a good show. It's going to be a banger. So that's Thursday the 22nd. Tickets are $50 because everyone's getting paid and I also need to buy some billboards to cover Oharu in a sea of green. Um, so, yeah, it'd be awesome to have people along for that. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, and, and thanks to my other co-hosts, uh, Mark and Paul, as well, for joining us this morning. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. And thanks, yeah, thanks, Stephanie, for joining us. Your comment's really insightful and um, all the best for the campaign. Ah, cheers, Paul. That's been another week of One of 200. If you want to support us, uh, we've got the link in the description as usual for the Patreon. Uh, Check us a couple of dollars. But the main thing is just retweeting this, sharing it around with friends and family, having conversations about this stuff. Um, You know, we're talking about rebuilding the frameworks around it, uh, rebuilding the discourse. The way that happens is with community engagement, with organizing. Um, So, yeah, just have a chat around the uh, water cooler. 
um, or the kitchen table, wherever else uh, you might meet other humans. We'll maybe catch you midweek with a uh, issues podcast, but otherwise we'll be back for current events next weekend. See you next time. If offices are then I'm living a pointless life, but I'm learning all your lessons. Fucking politics is no distinction. The words are now. It's paid with good intentions. And I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say when they cross the criticism across the Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're on the road to hell